Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Illinick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. This episode is the second half of my chat with Gordy Johnson of Toronto, Ontario's Big Sugar. So how is it now working for, uh, or working with, I should say, like a major label as opposed to like the indie stuff, the first kind of two records and EP came out? under was it um a different experience having you know presidents of labels and a and r people and this and that at a bigger at a higher level where budgets are bigger and more things are on the line was it a different experience or was it relatively the same no it was gross i hated it it was it was suffocating and but you know it's a game you play and we learn pretty quick to to play along uh, you know, say just agree to everything and then go in and do what you want <laughs> under the cloak of darkness. <laughs> you know, nice. nobody, no one was watching us. No one was looking over our shoulder when we made Hemi Vision. We were doing, we'd stay up all night doing dub remixes <laughs> of the tracks we'd recorded all day and got approved. You know, like we didn't, we didn't really care what anyone thought. We were making our music, much to their chagrin. But then the thing came out and was successful. It right. was massively successful and just kept on being successful. So suddenly there's all this money at stake. So when it came time to do the next record, suddenly there was kind of this committee attitude to, well, we need this to be, we need another dig in a hole. Hmm. I'm like, just but the last dig in a hole, you didn't need that. <laughs> Nobody asked for it. You didn't know what you needed. How about I tell you? No, they need another digging hole. So we went in the studio with Eddie Kramer, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin fame. And I loved Eddie and I loved his work. And he's a huge influence as a recording engineer and as a dude, like I just loved him. But he didn't understand reggae, not Mm. one bit, just did not get the language of it. A bass line must start on the root note of the chord. I'm like, yeah, not the world we come from. What are you talking about, man? This is, you know, we're playing reggae bass lines. He did not get it. He wanted a bass that went boom, 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 boom. That's it. Hmm. Follow the chords. We'll hear nothing more out of you. And I thought, ah, <laughs> well, that's unfortunate. So we sent him home. Huh. No hard feelings. I love the guy. But that, so that didn't work out. Uh-oh. It was like, well, what if we got Rick Rubin? I'm like, what if you get Sly and Robbie to produce it? Like, you guys don't get us. This is not, <laughs> we don't care. I don't care about, I don't care who produced the new Soundgarden. I don't care. Because <laughs> you don't understand that. So uh, there was, you know, there's back and forth, very stifled at one point. I just had to, like, I went on the lamb. I went to Texas or I went to the farm or, you know, I just went and hid out where there were no phones. Of course, there's no internet at the time, mm-hmm. no cell phones even. So I would just duck out and <laughs> reemerge and go, okay, can we please do this? Well, we need another dig in a hole. We love the record that you've made, but we need another dig in a hole. God damn you guys. <laughs> so they put us, they cut our budget to shreds and put wow. us in some tiny little basement studio on Spadina. Huh. Man, I can't even remember the name of it. I could see the Cameron house from the basement window anyway. <laughs> so we went in there, tiny little eight-track studio. Huh. And we need another dig in a hole. And so I was just having a laugh in there. You know, me, I have no musical concerns. I don't know what y'all are talking about. <laughs> I love me some James Brown. Oh, I know. James Brown meets the Blue Cheer on the scene, you know, (laughs) (laughs) pick some party lyrics from the don't talk dance guides and associates. And they had had this song about, you know, talking about posers. I'm like, Oh no, man, I'm on the scene. No, I love that. I get the humor of it. But you know, (laughs) when I was a kid, there was, there was, you know, you had American bandstand was on TV in the seventies and white kids dancing. Then you had soul train, which was black kids dancing. I used to watch all those shows. But we had a show in Detroit, a local show called The Scene. And it was just local homies out there dancing like, you know, (laughs) on TV to like songs that were hits locally. Oh, my God. It was the funkiest show. It made Soul Train look like a church meeting. It was crazy. (laughs) 
So I was like, I want to evoke that, but you know, again, I also then listen to the blue cheer on vinyl, like, yeah, on the scene. So I cut that in about 15 minutes. Hmm. Um, wow. <laughs> you know, made up a bunch of songs, just kind of all better get used to it. Same thing. Uh, huh. Dave Wall was the lead singer of Bourbon Tabernacle Choir, and he had had a song called Did You Get Used to It? And I just loved his singing on it. It was a cassette tape we used to pass around to friends. It wasn't on a record or anything. Just our friends knew about it. I thought, man, wouldn't that be a kick if Dave got to hear that melody just coming out? I credited him with it and stuff, but he wasn't sitting in the room. It was long after the fact that he went, what? (laughs) What have you done? Like, I remember our friends being at the CNE waiting to get on the zipper or something and hearing, wait a minute, I know that. What is that? How did Dave's cassette tape get on the, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So it it was that level of hijinks. Again, we're talking about songs that went to number one, became the singles. (laughs) And I was just fucking around, to put it bluntly. Wow. Uh, But the powers that be just kept saying, no, no, we need need one more. God damn. You guys are not being very inspiring here. (laughs) What would, Toots, what would Toots and the Maytels do, Gary? And then Gary and I just sat in the studio. And again, in the course of one afternoon, made up, turned the lights on. It wow. was really, it took about 15 minutes to write it wow. and about an hour to record it. Amazing. It's one take on the guitar. By the time I got to the solo, I broke a string. So the rest of the song is played on five strings. Wow. Including the solo, the solo and the rest of the song is played on five strings. And I just kind of went, eh, well, what are you going to do? It's turn the lights on. Nobody cares. This is not the next dig in a hole. <laughs> and you know what I mean? So eventually, I think that we just we just wore them out, and they finally say, okay, you can be finished. And we did the photo shoot and put the record out on the scene. Went to number one. Better get used to it. Charted really well. We put out Girl Watcher was a single a song called Girl Watcher, and it mm-hmm. did pretty good. And I mean, unbelievably, they were still looking for that digging a hole magic. And I was like, you know, guys, the song that gets the most juice live is this dumb little song you didn't want us to have on the record. Yeah, but rock radio won't play reggae. Like, yeah, whatever. They weren't going to play a song with harmonica. (laughs) Exactly. Remember? (laughs) So they put out Turn the Lights On and... That got played on the urban station. It got played on reggae, like huh. university reggae shows. You know, it got played on rock radio. It got played on the edge on alternative radio. It was a huge video hit. I mean, it only took about, 50, like I said, it took about 15 minutes to Amazing. write it. Um, because that's that's been the key to our things just for the stuff to really stick and hit home it has to be sincere first how about Mm because otherwise what do we we're not part of that scene you know again we were we were invited to the party and we didn't care we we weren't dressed for that party we didn't that's not how our music was made and it's the music we admired and respected and continued to listen to was never made under those conditions so we just didn't allow ourselves to be to be bullied that way. We just kept doing what we were going to do. Even up to the, the last record we made with a major record label at that time was Brothers and Sisters, Are You Ready? Which then, of course, had to have another Turn the Lights On on it. Like, you, oh, you <laughs> do you not, do we learn nothing? <laughs> and, you know, the song that has the most, uh, the most enduring from that record easily is All Hell for a Basement. But, you know, that was never a single. <laughs> it was never a radio single because it says Alberta in it and a bunch of guys in a Toronto boardroom couldn't huh. possibly imagine how any radio station outside of the province of Alberta would play the song. Wow. I'm like really? So they wanted us to not even put it on the record. I'm like, really? Huh. That's well, that is most peculiar. <laughs> uh, same with the national anthem. I've been playing O Canada at our shows for most of the decade. And they were like so worried about Quebec. Maybe we should take it off the record for Quebec. I'm like, are you guys out of your minds? <laughs> like, what the? F- it's their, their Canada too, ain't they? Like, what is your deal? Just, would you just calm down? Huh. So that's about that's at 
at which point I just kind of pulled the plug. <laughs> after, huh. the, after those board meetings, I was like, y'all are crazy. I'm <laughs> out. times there um digging a hole video is a is a memorable one i mean just uh you talk about the concept of that video was that something you came up with um talk about any memories of shooting it (laughs) the concept was hey it's cheaper to shoot videos in mexico like (laughs) like a hundred thousand dollars cheaper to fly everyone to mexico and shoot it down there because the crew and all the gear and all that stuff it's just so much cheaper to do cool let's go to Mexico. So we like left our, well, left my apartment with a double neck guitar and got on a plane. We flew to Mexico <laughs> and just, it was kind of like, it's how I imagine they made a hard day's night. You had these <laughs> four dudes who were just too busy laughing all the time. And that the cameras chasing us around, trying to capture us. <laughs> and these, okay. You guys stand over here. 
uh, oh, you know, there's Gary talking to a bunch of Mexican children. They're all touching his hair and laughing. <laughs> and, you know, we were drinking tequila and running around. And, yeah, it was a pretty haphazard, you know, one day we went to this bullfighting arena and went, whoa, oh, dude, what if I stood on the roof of this car? Oh, dude, there's a plane <laughs> flying over. Shoot that, you know. Awesome. Believe me, we were just, we did not take it seriously at all and I, I think that's the the beauty of pretty much any of our videos is you can kind of tell we're taking the piss because <laughs> it's a it's a it's a ridiculous thing to do anyway you're miming you're pantomiming to your own song trying to look cool it's like come on really all right you know so we had to have a bit of fun with it my i think my probably my favorite video though is uh you better get used to it mm. from uh from heated because at that time, I don't know if you remember, at that point in the 90s, swing was a big thing. That's right. right? Yeah, Zoot Suit Riots. Like and... The swing craze was going to be a thing. I was like, oh, man, we were doing the swing thing in like 1990, 89 <laughs> and 90. We've already been there, done that. This is bullshit. This is a trend. It's going to be here. It's going to be gone. But there was serious talk about how to make it swingier. Like, really? Did you say swingy? Come on. <laughs> There's absolute rubbish. Luckily, we had, you know, I mentioned the name Dave Porter earlier. He worked at Polygram, and he'd been with us from the very beginning. And luckily, we had, he was a very uh, subversive individual. He was not afraid to go <laughs> go behind the labels back to make sure that <laughs> we were still Big Sugar. He was definitely on our side, you know. So we did have an ally there. And so we thought, okay, yeah, we can make a swing here. So we brought, I don't know if you remember that video, but we brought all these swing dancers. We actually called some people who had like a swing dance night and they had all these swing dancers with their bobby socks and their frilly skirts <laughs> and dudes with slick back hair. It's like, yeah, you can come in and dance to our song in a video, but we only need you to do it for like four seconds. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, no, just for four seconds. <laughs> so that one of the first chorus of the song all these kids start swinging and then the video they, <laughs> they do the clapboard and blow a whistle they stop and they scoot all these idiots off the set and then we go back to rocking That's i love amazing. that man the first time i saw it on tv i laughed my ass <laughs> off i was so happy with that you mentioned of uh, being dressed for the part though i was curious um when in your timeline does the hugo boss relationship begin because I think you're the only uh, rock star I know of to ever be sponsored by Hugo Boss, at least the only Canadian rock star. I mean, I don't know if there's others, I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't think there are any other ones. Okay, so rewind to Sleep In Late, you know, our first record, and we got nominated for a video award. So we went to the party. I, I figured we weren't going to win. I mean, nobody knew who we were. <laughs> and again, it's, you know, it's grunge is in full swing, so everybody looks like crap. Right. <laughs> looking exactly. around at this. Yeah. this is a gala this is a party ain't you got some jeans that don't have holes in them <laughs> were you gonna comb your hair this week dude <laughs> you know i was looking around at these people thinking what really this is okay this is dressed up because i was wearing you know armani suit mm -hmm. tie my shoes all shined up i was sharp <laughs> you know because i was coming from the jazz scene this is how you went you left the house you looked you need to look crisp you know mm-hmm that I was standing at the party, not knowing anybody, looking around this circus going on. And this dude in a suit comes up to me, a young dude, and he huh. pulls open the lapel of my jacket. And he goes, Armani, wow. what, what, who are you? Why are you? Okay, <laughs> wait a second. Do you have a video that's in? I said, yeah, it's, we have a group called Big Sugar. Big Sugar, I've heard of you. Well, what? Why are you dressed like this? <laughs> like, because it's because it's actually cool, not like this bullshit. <laughs> and that was Robert Souza from Hugo Boss, and huh. we just struck up a relationship right then and there. He said, come to my office on Monday morning. I want to introduce you to my to my boss. And Robert was a young guy climbing the company ladder at Boss at the time. He'd gone from being like stocking shelves to being the number two guy to the president. He was like the go-to guy for, huh. for, for the people up there. So he was making some moves in his career and trying to get the brand noticed in unusual places because they were doing, you know, race car drivers and movie stars and newscasters and things like that. Robert brought me and was like, okay, this guy, though, 
we don't have anybody like this. We don't know anybody like this. Mm-hmm. He can be our dude. They can play at our parties. Our film festival party, we're going to have these guys, not some DJ. So pretty huh. visionary of them. So we sort of became their their pet rock stars for a while. Huh. And, you know, they would they would fly me and my wife out to Fashion Week in New York and we'd oh, go wow. to some gala in Montreal and they'd fly us to big car race in Vancouver and stay on a yacht and huh. they'd have a closet full of clothes for us. Don't pack anything, just show up, you know. Really? Uh, <laughs> so I got to see this whole, this fashion world from an insider perspective for for a decade. It was it was pretty cool. But it meant you had to be, you know, you had to fit the sample size of those clothes, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of, <laughs> there was a lot of fasting that went on. <laughs> You mentioned about like appearance with Hugo Boss and you looking good and wanting to look good and present a good image as opposed to what else was going on during the day. I'm curious, how much did image play into like artwork of records? Um, Can you maybe walk us through how you kind of treated that throughout your career? To me, it the ones that work the best always, again, it's kind of like with the videos. It should have a little bit of humor to it, just a little bit. Like just some, even if it's just in the design, like some throwback colors or put some strobe stripes on it or the the incandescent flashbulb logo that they designed for uh, brothers and sisters. Are you ready? Any of those records, it had to have a little bit of humor to it. I, I've never been fond of standing there with my cheeks sucked in, trying to look cool. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> some of those things that we've had to, you know, you get asked to do certain photographers don't get it. It's like, Oh, God, this is so painfully insincere i don't know if i can take it anymore you know <laughs> so those photos the best photo shoots we ever had lasted about 10 15 minutes some of our best work i think we did with andrew mcnaughton who was a very mm. famous photographer in fashion and he was on record as being rush's guy he did all the rush artwork at the time and all their photos and i think for the same reason i think you know by that point in their career Rush didn't have time to stand around all day sucking their cheeks in. You know what I mean? It's like, there's got to be, if this isn't fun, you're not getting a picture of Rush today. So Andrew had a great uh, lightheartedness. And yeah, I mean, he was a serious photographer, but he knew his skills so well that there was, he had time to laugh and be kind of uh, lighthearted about it. And like I said, he came from fashion. He shot Rush. And then when he got with us, he was like, I don't, you know, and, and he was like very flamboyant gay guy. And we just, we, he was so different from anybody we'd encountered at that point. I think we just, we loved that guy because he had that same kind of devil may care, throw his hands in the air and go, um, this, a spray bottle. I need to spray this guy down. I'm like, Oh, spray away, baby. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) So he's like, putting Vaseline on us, spraying us with a squirt bottle and we're rubbing it out of our eyes and he's taking pictures of us. And, you know, he made the the video for On the Scene. He made the video for uh, Better Get Used to It. I mean, those videos had a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Like, for On the Scene, he was like, oh, it'd be cool. I know some guys would like, Harley Davidson. I'd love to see you on a Harley Davidson. I'm like, okay. Oh, you know what? Don't worry about it, Andrew. I'll get us a Harley Davidson. So on the day we showed up for the shoot, I showed up with a little gas-powered motor scooter, a little like a skateboard on a stick with a lawnmower engine. Those little things, yeah, they yeah. had just come out. Yeah. And he looked at it. It was so preposterous. We were set up to shoot all these badass motorcycle shots. And what ends up <laughs> being in the thing is this ridiculous little scooter so you know that's that kind of energy to me always made great album covers videos any promotional stuff if you could get it done while laughing your asses off that that was probably worth doing you mentioned quebec earlier in regards to canada being on one of the records uh with hemivision you took the uh, not too common step of re-recording Open Up Baby in uh, French. Can you talk about how that exactly transpired? Well, we did that to several of the songs from Heated and the entire album for Brothers and Sisters, Are You Ready? That sort of became a thing we wanted to do because we toured there a lot. 
Mm-hmm. Back in those days, we, you know, we found ourselves on tour in Quebec as much as anywhere, huge population, but only in Montreal did they get us. Everywhere else, they kind of, we kind of, it was just this barrier we couldn't seem to get across. I thought, well, what if I start talking to people in French a little bit? And that, they sure appreciated that. And then we just started adding a song here, a song there. I started working with a band from Quebec called The Respectables, who were quite popular at the time. They're one of the biggest bands in Quebec. And I produced one of their records. And so they loved that idea. Oh, Gordy, we'll help you, man. And make <laughs> the lyric really cool. I'm like, okay, that would be great. Because up to that point, the lyrics were getting translated, but I had the feeling that the lyrics weren't that cool. I was like, mm. yeah, Big Sugar lyrics in English are pretty wry. Like, they're pretty... You got to check them a little bit. They're pretty funny, you know. So then having these guys, they were just like, they woke up rock and roll, you know. So I was like, okay, let's, they helped me rewrite everything hmm. in French. So we were really into that for a while. But man, it caused such an uproar in the boardroom hmm. with the execs because yeah. they're all English speaking guys. The one French speaking guy doesn't get heard and the rest of them are fighting and arguing. We don't think we should put. Oh, Canada on the French version of the record and the French radio will not play your song because they know you're not really French. And it was just this whole like, what? Hey, I'm just, I'm in a rock band. I just entertain people. What are y'all talking about? <laughs> Why is this a fight? I don't get it. So that was just another one of those things that, man, it seemed like such a good idea. Why, why do we, why are we not all getting behind this? And they couldn't really see the English people couldn't see the value in it. French people resented that the English, the company wasn't behind it. And so the, hmm. it just got caught up in all that bullshit. And I just think, you know, the people on the street liked it. And that's who I was trying to entertain. So anyway, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
you mentioned like uh, a while back touring Europe and whatnot. You went to Europe on 500 pounds. And um, where did uh, Hemivision and Heated take you? I mean, did they take you down to the States quite a bit? Did they take you to Europe? Did they take you to Jamaica? Did they take you? Well, you know, we started playing in Europe even after our first record oh, wow. was released in the Netherlands and Belgium and England and places like that. So from our very first record, we've been going over there to play. Um, and we're still, I mean, we don't go that often, but I'm still amazed to, you know, we can sell out a show in London hmm. and nowhere else in England. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like these little pockets of, uh, we've had opportunities to play with some much bigger bands in Europe and on some festivals and play to huge, you know, arenas full of people. And we've been invited to play on the German TV show, Rock Palast. Like we're going there again in March for our second invite to go over and be on a german music tv show so okay sure we'll go i love it i I love the the chance to go and travel and tour uh and hemi vision same thing we did you know we got to go over and play and and release that record there uh heated likewise heated got signed uh we signed to capricorn records but that's crashed and burned so hard you can't, it was like the worst air, airline crash you've ever huh. witnessed it was just on every level it could not have been more fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know how else to describe it example example we played at woodstock 99 we got invited to be on woodstock 99 because our record was out we were get, better get used to it. it was the first single it was getting airplay uh, especially in New York State, so like it got Woodstock '99. Went, to, you know, played a show at the Key to Bala in Ontario and Cottage Country the night before. Got on the tour bus, wet, huh. drove to Rome, New York, and then got out of the tour bus, and it looked like a war zone. I mean, wow. they put us in this airplane hangar, and. It's just where they put the bodies. <laughs> it was just people with sunstroke, having bad trips, kids throwing up, people sleeping on backpacks. It was just like, this is where we're playing? This looks like a triage. This is a hospital. <laughs> this is what? Oh, good. Let's just, let's just play in this graveyard. What the hell? We drove all the way here for this. I'm happy to report that. By the time they introduced Big Sugar, we walked on stage, we played one note, and 10,000 people came screaming into the tent and pushed against the stage, and we rocked their faces off for 90 minutes. It was amazing. Wow. But I got off stage, and MTV was waiting to interview us, and on my way to my interview table, I was informed that not only have we been dropped by our record label, we didn't wow. got dropped, but that there was no longer a Capricorn record. <laughs> wow. They dissolved, their deal with Mercury fell apart. Somebody at the Canadian label had had an affair with the wife of the head of Capricorn <laughs> and the head of Capricorn's father, Phil Walden, was so upset with the whole mess of the label he founded in the 60s that he just said, Screw it and shut it all down. Wow. Fired everybody. <laughs> broke all the deals with 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 you, you, Universal Music Canada, and we were on our way to the interview table. <laughs> like, oh, really? That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, I've seen I've seen footage of those interviews where I'm just going, uh, yeah, well, you know, yeah, I guess, sure, we're Big Sugar and. Will you hear of us a week from now? I don't know. You know, it was just such a schmozzle and based on the flimsiest of just garbage reasons for the whole thing to blow up. But I guess emotions got pretty hot and somebody did the wrong thing somewhere and we got caught in the crossfire and the other week it was released, it was killed. Wow. Amazing. So yeah, yet another, and without apology to us, by the way, there was like no amends <laughs> were not made that it wasn't they didn't make it up to us you know i mean it's like uh yeah somebody at your company really screwed us over here oh well that's kind of how it goes you know have your lawyer call our lawyer (laughs) anyway there's no point crying over it 
what was the kind of follow like the kind of game plan after that like after you got home and you know you, that kind of sunk in i guess i mean you're talking to your management i mean what's you're talking to the bandmates you're talking to gary you're talking to kelly i mean what are you guys kind of thinking at that point well you know we we had we had weathered some pretty horrible storms mm-hmm. between you know then and when we started so it unfortunately it didn't feel like something new and horrible it just felt like something old and horrible it was just <laughs> right. the yeah. same usual stuff i mean look man by the time you know 2001 2002 by the time i packed it in with big sugar the first time around i was well ready because mm-hmm. it just that sort of thing started to take up all of the day all of the discussion leading up to sound check between sound check and show and then after show that's all that was permeating the wow. conversation and don't forget 9-11 also happened right, which right. suddenly you know we had a gig on the 12th of september at york university huh. <laughs> for the first for the first gig of our brothers and sisters are you ready tour oh wow the september 12th you know what i mean it's wow. like wow can you you can't make this shit up yes, timing could not be worse so that, yeah and the, the entire industry had a huge downturn after that i mean there was there was the y2k Mm-hmm. crisis remember that Anybody? yes i do like, yeah. why okay oh my god 1999 it's about to end and all the computers will take over the world it didn't happen but it definitely put a damper on the party for a minute where you couldn't there was no uh confidence that being on tour or doing a show we had a show a sold out show that night i know a lot of people who lost lost everything over that night we had a sold out show in edmonton we didn't care it was like we're going to charge people the same amount we always charge them. And if the lights go off, <laughs> I'll grab an acoustic guitar, man. I don't care. I'll, <laughs> I'll grab a flashlight. It'll, awesome. it'll be fine. And it was. But yeah, man, it was It was definitely a, as that era of Big Sugar wrapped up, like I said, just boardroom fighting over French this and can't play the national anthem that and we need another dig in a hole and this can't be a single. Oh, how about this one? you have black guys in your band. Wow. <laughs> like I, somebody said that to wow. me at a record company meeting. Wow. Like, Oh, that's the reason we're not selling as many records as you'd like us to, because say that again, can <laughs> I quote you on that? What year is this? <laughs> and by the way, this is Canada. Oh, Canada. The yeah. all inclusive mosaic. That is mm-hmm. what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, man. Like, when those conversations start getting had, you start looking at it and going, why? I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't sign up for this part of it mm-hmm. and I'm still not into that part of it. I sink or swim will always just make the music that I'm going to make. Cause it's entertaining to people. It's entertaining to me to make it. And it's a mutual, it's a mutual give and take there. As long as there's people digging it, I'll do it and I'll dig doing it. So that's, that's my entire, you know, checklist of priorities. <laughs> Everything else after that, you know, we'll, we'll try to work it out. But you know, speaking of the end of a another era of Big Sugar was the the passing of Gary Lowe. Um, can you maybe um, talk a little bit about what he meant to Big Sugar as a musician, or what he meant to you as a friend? Well, I'm blessed to have a great body of work of a thing that we created together. It's amazing it was created without a lot of discussion. Mm. You know, it really was, of all the people that came in and out of the band, it was the most symbiotic and nonverbal relationship. We just understood things the same way, played with the same touch, expressed the same things at the same time. It was really... I mean, I had great relationships that way with with Al Cross in the early days, Kelly Hoppy, of course, I played with for many years. But even with those guys, there would be some discussion and some acknowledgement. Oh, it's like this. Oh, it's like one of those. Whereas with me and Gary, if I just, in rehearsal, you know, if I made the band stop and I tried to show somebody, okay, well, look, when it gets to this part, I would start playing and Gary would just start playing and there would just be this lockdown 
of parts that just sounded like one thing. Mm. It was no longer two guys playing off of each other. It was just became this one thing that married together, you know? So that's a hard, that's a hard thing to replace. And so, you know, I've spent the last couple of years not trying to replace that because of course, how can you, mm-hmm. and, you know, made, We've made music since then, or I've played the bass, Big Ben from Grady's played bass on, on one of the records and great bass player. And we, you know, we have a musical voice together as well, but that Gary Lowe era, you know, I, I've had to kind of let go of that because, you know, you're not going to teach someone to play like that, but there is, I will say that there is hope for the future because, you know, Gary has kids and his 21 year old son asked me for a bass. Oh, wow. And I gave him a bass. Amazing. And I've been checking up on, I've been checking up on him lately and I'm hearing some stuff over FaceTime that's kind of blowing my mind because without realizing it, here's a kid who plays like his dad and, you know, I'm not making any announcements, mm-hmm. but I tell you that does give me, it does inspire me to look at, you know, the way I look at our legacy and what I'm going to do going forward. Mm-hmm. There, there's going to be some, going to be some more FaceTime meetings, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's a beautiful thing, sir. That's that's awesome to hear. You mentioned um, a your new record, I guess, kind of inadvertently that you still made music post. Gary's passing, and that's the record Eternity Now, um, yeah. which is five years post the last big record, Big Sugar record. Well, you know, the band went through a lot of a lot of changes. I mean, we we put out when we got back together, what around 2012, Revolution per Minute. It was a new band from mm-hmm. it wasn't the same dudes that you know that that we left in '02. You know, ten years later, we had this new version of Big Sugar that contained all people that were part of our scene. You know, it was always meant to be that. And then that band continued to evolve. We put out uh, Calling All the Youth. We toured. We played bigger shows than we ever played, even back in the day. Wow. Without radio support, without videos, without all that stuff. We just went out and played. People wanted to come and see us. And it, it really has given me the inspiration and courage to keep creating and create keep making new stuff it's very tempting and very easy to go on a greatest hits tour Mm -hmm. to just go to the casino collect the check play the hits 75 minutes thank you good night digging a hole you know (laughs) Uh, again that's not what i signed up for i don't care that they're hits these are the songs these are my songs i'm gonna play them for you can you dig it so (laughs) we continue to evolve we went and did this huge acoustic like 12 piece band acoustic orchestra playing and theaters, top-seat, beautiful auditoriums and stuff. Yeah, it was all great. But then even that version of the band got to a point where, yeah, there's some creative burnout that happens. And just personally, I mean, I've been burning the candle at both ends for a couple of decades because I went right from Big Sugar to Grady, Mm -hmm. which meant getting back in a van, no guitar tech, no roadies, (laughs) pack your own stuff, punk rock style, just a couple of black T-shirts and a pair of jeans. Woohoo! You know, (laughs) All we need is a bottle of tequila and a, you know, and a towel. That's it. That's our rider.
and yeah, I did that for almost a decade, you know, so, and then come back to Big Sugar, that Big Circus went out, man, my, my personal life, by the time 2015 ended, <laughs> I was like, I was either going to get put in jail or the hospital or <laughs> both, you know, I mean, it was like, I needed to have a little self-examination and, and, and figure out, you know, what did I even want to do going forward? So it took me a couple of years to, to rebuild myself mm. and get a clear personal vision of what we were going to do going forward, which was going quite well, but then Gary got sick. Mm. And then it became about taking care of Gary and just keeping his mind on music and making him warm and comfortable and happy and flew him to Texas and did everything we could. That's awesome. And then when he passed, I've been living in the aftermath of that. Mm -hmm. And we put out, you know, Eternity Now, in typical Big Sugar fashion, it came out March 2020. <laughs> <laughs> right time with the pandemic. So, yeah. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't put out another record because I'm not sure what horrible <laughs> disaster that will alter history will result <laughs> from Big Sugar putting out a record. Not to be too egotistical, but I have a bit of a backstory. Um, <laughs> so what are you going to do? I mean, yeah, it's horrible. But it's given me time, again, it's given me a year and a half to reflect and rebuild and think about what Big Sugar is going to be going forward. You know, the interest from people like Third Man and, you know, are even, you know, my, you know, my old heroes like Billy Gibbons is easy top. Their interest in Big Sugar, even the back in the day Big Sugar, gives me time to pause and reflect and go, hey, you know what? I mean, look, the people that matter to me still care, so I still care. Is Jack White somebody you've met in person and hung with and played with, or is he just uh, like a fan from afar kind of thing? Or? I don't know. I guess I'll find out. But they approached <laughs> us about about putting out 500 pounds, and all I heard was, yeah, somebody around here is a Big Sugar fan. I'm like, somebody? Exactly. Okay. I mean, strangely, our path didn't, cross because big sugar used to play detroit all the time in the early 90s we used yeah. to play the majestic and the magic bag and st andrews hall and we played detroit regularly uh and we are our songs got played on the radio in detroit but we're talking about the early 90s so i mean i guess maybe a young jack white was kicking around detroit going Oh, well, I guess you can play Sunhouse on an electric guitar and get away with it. You know what I mean? It's, it's not, I'm not the first guy to do it, but I'm definitely not the last guy to do it. You know? So I don't know. It, that'd be, that'd be cool. I mean, there's a guy whose aesthetic I've always admired, just his whole approach to visual and sonics of putting out records. Of, mm. it's, it would be a great honor to, to be in that company and put out a record with them. One more note on Eternity Now there. There's a track called uh, New Event Horizon, which I can't get enough of personally. Um, can you maybe uh, share any kind of thoughts or any kind of stories into writing recording that song and any kind of background on it? It's, uh, well, I you know, living in Texas, I play a lot of Latino music, Tejano music, mm. Cuban music, um, all of those cumbias, Colombian music there's a very, very strong presence of that here. It's not all just, you know, fabulous Thunderbirds and Jimmy Vaughn and Stevie <laughs> Vaughn. I mean, you know, that is part of our history too here, but uh, I draw on all of it much the same way when I lived in Toronto, you know, I was part of the blues scene, but there was this amazing reggae scene. Mm. So I tapped pretty heavily into the, the Latin music scene here and would get hired to play bass. We get hired to play Trez. Trez is a Cuban instrument that has got, six strings but it's actually you know three double sets of strings hmm. so it's like a three string instrument interesting um so i adapted an electric guitar to be able to play electric tres on hmm. on these cuban gigs and i was digging that with an electric tres i didn't know anybody else with an electric tres and so i started playing it through my big sugar rig and went all right <laughs> listen to that so there's a couple of songs on Eternity that have the Therese, it's not even a guitar. It's, huh. yeah. And that whole rhythm to the song is also, you know, it, although it's a rock and roll rhythm section, it's based on the rhythmic template of how Latin music gets played, Colombian music gets played, you know, that. So I draw, you know, 
I go into my spice drawer and I add what's there, and that happens to be what's there at the moment. So that's why that song has that weird sound to it. Texas and the next question, the next answer, feel feel free to name drop as many people as possible. But, um, you know, Linklater and Tarantino and Matthew McConaughey, they're all big music buffs. They're all in Austin. You ever run into those guys at gigs or anything of that nature? I ran into Matthew McConaughey. Matthew had to borrow some conga drums from the studio one day. So oh, yeah. Over at Willie, Willie Nelson's studio. Uh, <laughs> awesome. uh, I met Jim Jarmusch backstage at the Continental Club. Oh, no way. That was pretty cool. I'm a huge Jarmusch yeah, fan amazing, from yeah. like his first movie to present day. And so to have that big shock of white hair go, Oh, you're a big sugar. <laughs> like, ah, what just happened? Oh my God. Oh my God. That just blew my mind. 
So yeah, Austin's Austin's cool that way because you know I had Lance Armstrong punch me in the arm one night after a Grady gig. <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess you liked it, but Jesus, that was like getting hit with a pipe. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's like, so it's it's everyone's got to be somewhere you know yeah yeah fair enough. people are hanging around austin they're hanging around where the music is and yeah. that tends to be where i am so <laughs> you know i've more than once seen billy gibbons playing pool behind you know in the back room of the club while we were playing so wow crazy speaking of willie nelson though um uh willie nelson played a role in you getting your citizenship in uh, the u.s did he not do you write a letter of some sort? <laughs> this I got to hear the story. I got to hear all the stories uh, well, connected with you and Willie Nelson because he's a funny cat. I mean, we worked at his studio for God, decade and a half. Crazy. And really kind of revived it from it would be pretty much mothballed when I got there. Nobody was using it anymore. Huh. And I just I was I love the store behind it. I love the facilities. So we really you know, we booked as much time as we could and they cleaned it up and we got it all working and made a bunch of records there. Government Mule did some records there. Hmm. All brought all my clients there. I got to work with Ian McLagan and the Faces and North Mississippi All Stars and all kinds of people like that out at uh, Burnell's. Huh. And we got in the Grady days, we got, you know, you'd see Willie out there once in a while. He'd come in and have to cut a vocal. So you'd have to kind of clear out for a minute and. Huh. He'd tell you a few jokes and smoke a joint and go back to the golf course. <laughs> uh, so we asked him if he would do a spoken word thing on a Grady record. So he did. He came in and told huh. a joke on our record. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yes, and, uh, and so, you know, just because we've been, I'd worked, I'd worked with his sister. I'd hired her on some sessions. And huh. I worked with his niece and nephew at the studio, run the studio. And so we've been part of that world for, you know, the whole time I've lived in Texas. So when we were putting together letters of reference for, you know, for us Homeland security, you know, you try to get as many known people as you can on. I got a U.S. Congressman. I got a, I got Joe Satriani. I got Warren Haynes, of course. Um, you know, I had this really nice list of, mm -hmm. of people and I thought, but you know, <laughs> You're going to put one letter on the top of that stack because you had to have like 16 letters. If you're going to get one on the top, wouldn't it be wicked if it was Willie? So I waited about four years. My lawyer kept saying, whoa, when are we going to get that? This has been going on for a while now. I said, look, it's Willie Nelson. You get it when you get it. He's like, it's worth waiting for. You. And then uh, one day it happened. I got it. but. Wow. It's written on a bar napkin. <laughs> that is amazing, sir. <laughs> it's not typed. So we submitted it. I'm like, hey, fair's fair, man. You want it authentic? This is the don't get more authentic than this. No, no, so I got kidding. Willie. You know, he's an important part of our musical community. And surely would love you to extend uh, every uh, hospitality to this young man and uh, welcome him to our uh, to our great country you know signed <laughs> willie nelson on a bar napkin oh that's amazing <laughs> before we get into the final final question um any final thoughts on the 90s in canada as a whole or your experience within them anything you can reflect on that uh we kind of talked a bit about about it off air but um if there's anything you'd like to say on air about um well, the 90s in canada and the music scene in 90s in canada yeah i you know i do uh, this crosses my mind quite often because mm. You know, you can get so caught up in your pursuits that in this moment, you don't realize that you might be in the golden era. Because mm. believe me, from New Year's 1990 to New Year's 2000, we didn't consider it a golden era of anything. <laughs> we didn't consider it the best of times. We didn't realize what we had going on. It only seemed like it just had to get better. And now you look back at it and go, wow, it was amazing. You had all this infrastructure and you had a, 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 an entertainment industry that was based on live music and beer companies and cigarette companies. There was all this money and people still bought records and then you could play at universities. All these things you completely took for granted. I assure you, every one of us did. You just were trying to get to that next hit, the next big gig, the next 
big opportunity to break and make get famous or whatever the hell you're pursuing you know i'm just glad that the whole time what i was focused on was music it seems like the rest of it was a distraction and we got to make great music but in terms of a, an era it's hard to recognize it when you're in it mm-hmm. so i would say as a cautionary from someone who was there Look around you now, because this might be the good old days. <laughs> yes, to that. <laughs> as weird yeah. and bad as it seems, mm-hmm. this might be your good old days. So make the most of it. <laughs> Nicely said, sir. Um, final question. Uh, I have a playlist on Apple and Spotify of all 90s, quote-unquote, can rock. So I'm asking all the guests to contribute two singles and one deep cut for the playlist. So how would you like Big Sugar's 90s material to be represented on the playlist? Wow. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a, I mean, turn the lights on. I mean, mainly the songs we talked about, you know, turn the lights on really is the penultimate coming together of all the things about Big Sugar. To mm. me. And as is digging a hole. Nice, yeah. Those two songs really cemented our, our our position or anything, you know, in music, in the his, that history of, of that time. Mm-hmm. And as far as a deep cut, I mean, I almost consider Ride Like Hell to be one just because it never, it didn't have any commercial success per se, but that song, the echoes of it just continue to this day. Like it will not go away. I continue to make, you know, it continues to, to find opportunities for me as an artist, <laughs> even this long after the fact. Amazing, yeah. There's something, something about it that just continues to echo. Well, excellent choices, sir. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today about your experience in the 90s, man. It's been fantastic. Well, thank you so much for reaching out. Uh, like I said, I'm a fan of seeing your posts. I, I've always found them very entertaining and uh you rekindle a lot of memories of stuff we otherwise would have forgotten. So thank you. Awesome. That means a lot coming from you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash ravedrool, become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notes of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more 90s can rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself, the tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.